good evening and welcome everyone. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And our aim um, in the Miliband this, uh, program this year has been to consider whether there's been a loss of confidence in the possibility of progress and, if so, whether it can be reversed. And so, needless to say, the leader of the Labor Party must surely be central to any such effort. So it's really a, a particular pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Jeremy Corbyn. Many of you will know Jeremy has been a uh, Member of Parliament for more than 30 years. Before that, he worked for the trade union movement and was active in local government. As an MP, I mean, I think he's been a parliamentarian, you know, an, an honourable occupation. Um, he's served in a wide range of parliamentary committees. He's championed many social movements and organisations, and I'll just mention one amongst them, an initiative to renew the socialist tradition in which Ralph Miliband was intimately involved. Since becoming leader, I think it's fair to say he's placed the development of an alternative economic policy at the centre of his priorities, but he also has a long history of involvement with movements against war, like CND, human rights groups like Amnesty International and international solidarity campaigns like the anti-apartheid movement. And partly in recognition of that, in 2013, he was awarded the Gandhi International Peace Award for, quotes, his consistent effort over 30 years to uphold Gandhian values of social justice and non-violence. Well, our speaker tonight, who's also being streamed live, and I, I welcome all the people who are listening to our event, We'll be speaking for about 35 minutes or 40 minutes and then we'll have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. So can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, the leader of the Labor Party, the Right Honourable Jeremy Corbyn. Just sorting out the choreography, you know how it goes. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to come here tonight. Uh, it's a real, real pleasure to be here at the LSE to commemorate Ralph Miliband and to thank everyone at the LSE that helped to organise tonight's event and for the very kind introduction you've just given me because uh, I haven't been told for a very long time that politics is an honourable profession so you, you, thank you very much there indeed and um, this theatre has uh, great memories for many people particularly my age and generation who remember this as the centre of the occupation in 1968 of the LSE don't worry most of you weren't born at that time it's okay um, and um, the contribution that this place has made to labour movement history from Harold Lasky onwards uh, as a place of radical thought and a place that has um, helped an awful lot of people develop enormous intellectual capacity Ralph Miliband had a great mind and was an absolutely brilliant writer. Seminal works, parliamentary socialism, state and a capitalist society, a thought-provoking analysis of what we can achieve when we want to. And they stood the test of time, and they demonstrate that fantastic, towering intellect he had. I can't say I knew Ralph very well, but I did know him fairly well because we used to meet regularly at Tony Benn's house during the late 1980s. Tony always had a great eye for history and was concerned in the 1980s at the direction the Labour Party was taking. 
uh, when uh, aims and values had just been produced. And um, he said, we need a discussion group, and I've decided to call it the Independent Left Corresponding Society. And Tony established the Independent Left Corresponding Society, which met in his house, named as such because of the origins of those corresponding societies in the radical movements who were being oppressed during the um, post-Napoleonic wartime. And we used to meet on Sunday evenings in Tony's house. They, well, there was a chair in Tony's house which had been given to uh, him and Caroline, which was Keir Hardy's old chair. The problem is this chair was grotesquely uncomfortable, had a carving on the back that um, stuck right into your back if you leant back in the chair, and was highly polished front, so you slid off it if you it didn't concentrate very hard throughout the meeting. And it was the chair that was always empty and left for the last person to arrive. So it was an incentive to arrive on time, so you didn't get Keir Hardy's chair. And... Um, that chair was where I frequently sat because I was often late for the event. And the um, discussions we had were Ralph, were Tony Benn, were Tarek Ali and Hilary Wainwright and um, Jim Mortimer and a number of others. And we used that as a form of um, good debate and good discussion. And to me, it was um, part of my own education. Ralph once said that believing the Labour Party could promote socialism was, and I quote, the most crippling of all illusions to which socialists in Britain have been prone. Now, I've become the leader of the Labour Party, so I suppose it falls to me this very difficult task of trying to prove that Ralph was wrong. I respect Ralph's intellect and his knowledge, and um, let's go through it on how we deal with the issues of facing us today. To me, the starting point of socialism is not economic structures, it derives from a fundamental philosophy that everyone should care for everyone else. That is not exclusive to socialism. It's a philosophy at the heart of all the world's major religions and is a decent human instinct. Socialism is about delivering the political program to put that into practice, to create a society in which socially and economically we can ensure that everyone is protected and cared for. That demands a fundamental shift in ownership and power in society that Ralph argued for, and for us, it's about making it into a reality. Now, the public's faith in politics to change society, to improve people's lives, has been fundamentally shaken. To rebuild the politics of hope, we have to restore that confidence. So what I want to try and do tonight is set out how we, as socialists, can rebuild the politics of hope. When he was talking about the post-war era of politics, Tony Benn, who was a great friend of mine, said, democracy transferred power from the wallet to the ballot. What people couldn't afford for themselves, they could vote for instead. Tony understood that it was democracy that unlocked the potential for socialist policies to deliver, and his generation absolutely did. The radical Labour government of 1945 that delivered so many of the social achievements which we as Labour Party members are so proud of. The National Health Service, the welfare state, council housing, comprehensive education, institutions that were about the collective good of all and improvement of the lives of all. The confidence that politics could change lives for the better was so powerful it endured, largely untouched, through Conservative and Labour governments of the 1950s, 1960s 
and well into the 1970s. In that era as well, elected government, centrally or locally, was responsible for running things. I grew up in an era when the railways were publicly owned, the buses were publicly owned, electricity was publicly owned, gas was publicly owned, water was publicly owned, telecommunications was publicly owned and run. And we had governments that had an industrial strategy. It stepped in to support strategic industries or businesses if they needed support. Whether it was nationalising Rolls-Royce under the Conservative government of Edward Heath when it collapsed, or the proactive investment in technology of both the first Harold Wilson government of 1964 and the second one. In the 1970s, I was a trade union worker at the Engineering Union. I later went on to be <coughs> an official for the National Union of Public Employees doing organising work. But when I was at the AUEW, as it was then called, Tony Benn came to us, who was then industry secretary, to say he had real problems in delivering what was in Labour's manifesto because of the obstructionism of civil servants. He was trying to develop planning agreements, he was trying to develop high technology, and he was trying to take into public ownership shipbuilding, aerospace, and the um, oil production industry, the oil uh, exploration industry. And he asked us for support and help and guidance on that, particularly in respect to the motor industry. And it taught me a great deal doing that. But later on, the era ended with an individualistic and neoliberal creed of the Thatcher government. That came in 1979 onwards, which systematically dismantled the institutions of collective power and administration. Trade unions were shackled by what became the most restrictive anti-trade union laws in Europe. Local government was constrained and many of its functions forcibly outsourced to the private sector. And central government was removed from administering much of it at all. Margaret Thatcher and her government rolled back the public realm. The latter point is, was an abdication of political and economic responsibility. Instead of previous governments, that is the post-war consensus, seeing full employment as a fundamental responsibility, the Thatcher government saw unemployment as a cause for individual blame as they systematically set about destroying industries like the steel industry and the coal mining industry. We had Norman Tebbit saying, get on your bike. We had Peter Lilly's little list. And we had John Major's exhortation during... Uh, understandable public unrest to condemn a little more and understand a little less were all about diverting responsibility for social failure from government to individuals. It was the individualization of politics and society that the conservatives and many commentators and thinkers were promoting at that time. There was more to this mere moralizing the Conservative government systematically dismantled public services and the tax base that underpinned them. Massive tax cuts, particularly for wealthy individuals and corporations, meant worse public provision for all. And so the use of public provision, whether in housing, social security or transport, was deemed to be an illustration of personal failure. And Thatcher had an eye to the main chance and was quite brilliant at some of her communication, albeit in a direction that I wouldn't agree with, who said that anyone uh, riding a bus over the age of 25 was a failure. Um, she actually said it. I heard it. It wasn't just a phenomenon in the UK, but it was driven by Reagan in the US and the ideas of Reaganomics. 
Um, the maxim of Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes, I like paying my taxes, with them I buy civilization, was replaced by greed is good. The economic thinking of Milton Friedman and the Chicago School became the neocon agenda, was ruthlessly and brutally experimented on in Chile in the 1970s after the Pinochet coup, and uh, they were, in a sense, guinea pigs for the neocon agenda. It was dominate that then became dominant in the U.S., People lost faith in the idea of government supporting their aspirations. I'm not just talking here about aspirations of the delusional, like Del Boy, who said, this time next year, Rodney, we'll be millionaires. The, import, the importation of the individualist American dream. But there was a, um, a great U.S. comedian, George Carlin, who once said, they call it an American dream, because you'd have to be asleep to believe it. But real aspiration is the aspiration for a secure home, a secure job, a productive job that satisfies and enriches life, the security of knowing your loved ones will be well cared for when you get old or fall sick, the security of knowing your children, nieces or nephews will attend a good school, the aspiration to know your family, friends and neighbours are getting on okay too, and that you have time, opportunity and facilities to enjoy some decent leisure time. These are the things that actually make our lives good. And democratic government has both the responsibility and the capacity to guarantee them. A government that runs as little as it can get away with, has no industrial strategy, has privatized key parts of our economy necessary for a decent life, has abdicated both its social and its economic responsibilities. People will not trust and will not have faith in a government that abdicates its responsibilities through privatisation, deregulation and neglect. People know that to change things you need power. When governments appear powerless to change things, people won't have faith in them. When government gives its powers away, the people lose faith in it. Now, I rebelled against the new Labour government a few times in the 1990s. Well, in fact, several hundred times. Because many of the good things that government did, I supported, obviously, and, uh, but I was not convinced of some of its actions or inactions that, in effect, reinforced much of the Thatcher agenda and inheritance. And in the period, New Labour undermined trust too. New Labour was often actually very unfairly tarnished with the label of spin. It actually spun no more than its predecessors or, indeed, its successors. But we did go to war... The Chilcot report will come out in a few weeks' time and tell us what we need to know, that uh, I think we already know. There were no weapons of mass destruction. There was no ability to attack within 45 minutes, and a deal had been done with Bush in advance. Labour was also in office when the MPs' expenses scandal broke. Politicians of all parties were implicated in unethical and sometimes outright illegal behaviour. It provided very clear evidence for many cynics that politicians are all in it for themselves. They don't care about us or about creating a better society. They care about themselves. Huge damage was done to public perceptions and to democracy. Now, I've been in Parliament, as was pointed out, 33 years. And let me just be very clear about this. I have um, met many MPs, obviously, of all parties, I don't believe that most politicians are in it, for, in it for themselves, but the perception is real. And as elected politicians, we have a duty to challenge it, not just in our words, but in our actions too. And that is the fundamental failure. 
perhaps the biggest event in recent times to damage confidence in politics was the banking crash, a global banking crash that happened under a Labour government and that unleashed the most profound economic crisis since the 1930s. The bailout was necessary to avoid a much bigger fallout, but the opportunity that that provided for systematic change was missed. Politicians were too cautious, too ambition, uh, unambitious, and too lacking in vision to see the opportunity for fundamental reform, the sort of fundamental reform that great governments do. Banks were part-nationalised, but not used as motors of investment and essential economic change. People felt that banks were bailed out while they were suffering. They felt excessive greed had been allowed to fester unrestrained, and people felt government was reactive, not proactive, too passive. That was reflected in a clear decline in voter turnout in, at general elections. An increasing share of the population, those who grew up under Thatcher and Major particularly, who saw no hope in government and didn't bother to vote. This was actually rational. They didn't believe politicians either could or would change things in any substantial way. They didn't see that politics could improve their lives, so they didn't vote. And people lost faith in Labour because we conceded too much ground to Conservatives. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Firstly, on the welfare state, I'm absolutely proud to defend the principle of a social security system that defeats poverty, homelessness and destitution. And we, and we must defeat the injustices that go with it. But people were too timid. Opinion polls told us that people didn't like welfare, so we stopped making the arguments for real social security in our lives. I say that as a general point. Opinion polls are interesting, but they should not make policy. They should inform strategy. They only tell you where public opinion is at the present time. As a political party, as a labour movement, we have to decide whether we are to bolster that view or to challenge that view. If the government of Harold Wilson had listened carefully to opinion pollsters' advice in the 1960s, some of the enormous social advances that were made by the 1964 to 70 Labour government simply would not have happened. The death penalty was abolished, homosexuality was legalised, abortion was legalised. These were massive social changes in a country that was fundamentally quite conservative. Yet they went through with a Labour majority making sure they went through in Parliament. Harold Wilson himself said, the Labour Party is a moral crusade or it is nothing. And so as a party, we have to be prepared to make the strong moral case of equality, of an end to injustice, and for supporting sometimes issues that don't enjoy the support of many of our newspapers in society. It is the function of a political party to stand out and say what it really believes in. So I'm very proud of two of the biggest reversals we've achieved in the last eight months in the Labour Party and indeed in our society. We managed to stop the tax credit cuts that would have been introduced in April and would have taken an average of £1,000 away this year from 3 million families in Britain who are entitled to receive working tax credits. That's a very large amount of money. That was a combination of public campaigning, parliamentary pressure, and finally a vote in the House of Lords. And then the proposal in the budget to end personal independence payments for people with disabilities 
was defeated after two or three days because of public outrage and pressure. That meant £4 billion is now being spent on uh, those personal independence payments that would have been taken away almost immediately by this government. Cruel, unpleasant, nasty, unnecessary and divisive. And secondly, on immigration. We have to stand up to the divisive rhetoric of UKIP and increasingly of many of the Tories as is being played out in this uh, uh, EU referendum that's going on at the moment. To be clear saying that government cuts that are putting a strain on public services. This again is another risk if politics fail. If politicians fail to deliver a decent society and fail to create opportunities for all, then feelings of frustration and alienation can grow and those feelings can easily be manipulated by the divisive politics of xenophobia and hate, which is being played out across Europe with the rise of the far right in many Western European countries. Speaking in a, series, uh, speaking in a lecture series dedicated to Ralph Miliband seems to me a very important point to make. Ralph was himself a refugee who made his way to this country and made an incredible contribution, just like so many others that have made their way to our shores and made an incredible contribution here. We could and should and must be proud of the contribution that has been made by so many that have made their home in this country. The politics of hope are not an inevitable reaction when politics failed. The politics of hope have to be rebuilt. It takes social movements to do that. Movements like those in Latin America that have changed so much of Latin American politics and thirst for democracy and thirst for fairness and justice. Like those sweeping across southern Europe at the present time and that is shaking up the Democrat race in the USA, particularly the support for Bernie Sanders and the campaign around him. In the UK, we face a government bearing many of the hallmarks of the Thatcher governments. A determination to roll back the state to cut taxes on the richest and corporations, and to attack trade unions. A government that is unprincipled and unashamed to play the politics of division, demonising people on welfare as scroungers and shirkers, and, quite disgracefully, referring to people fleeing persecution and finding themselves living in fetid refugee camps across Europe as a swarm or a bunch of migrants. They're human beings just like any of us trying to survive in a very difficult and cruel world. They also sought to abdicate their responsibility when it came to the crisis in the steel industry. It was only concerted pressure from trade unions, Labour MPs and steel communities that forced the government to change its position and now accept that the government must take a role in the steel industry in the future to ensure that it survives. So while their intentions are ideologically identical to that of the Thatcher government to roll back the state, this is a government that can be rolled back itself because they're out of sync with mainstream public opinion. Their policies are unpopular and people can see that a Labour opposition is actually standing up to them. Since I became leader, I've had several conversations with Ed Miliband and I really value this and I thank Ed very much for the very good advice and help he's given me since I became leader. He understood that trust had been eroded. He knew that it had to be rebuilt. He also rejected the politics of division, setting out a vision of One Nation Britain. At the last election, Ed said, I want to under-promise and over-deliver. 
speaking with a candor and modesty that many people believe few politicians possess. But actually, I think that modesty and the modesty of our manifesto at the last election didn't, it, did it actually reinforce the view that politics can't change things for the better or has only the limited ability to do so? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that our country requires very major change indeed. For Labour to win a majority in the general election in 2020, we need to win seats that we have not won for several decades, maybe win some seats that we've never won before. It is an ambitious task. And that is without the gerrymandering of the electorate through the individual voter registration, that is without the gerrymandering of parliamentary constituencies through a boundary review based on a gerrymandered electoral roll. So Labour will be ambitious and bold at the 2020 election. We will make big promises, and if we're elected, we will deliver them. We will do so as part of a movement, a movement that empowers ordinary people, and that ensures everyone has housing security, delivers a greater security at work, ensure no one suffers indignity in old age, ensures that every young person has the opportunities to maximise their talents, and that ensures we tackle the grotesque levels of inequality within our society. Ralph Miliband described socialism as the fundamental recasting of the social order. Labour must aim for nothing less than that. Our aim now is to build a movement, a social movement, from the disadvantaged to the dispossessed to the people who want a government that supports them to get on in life. The reversals and U-turns we've achieved, whether over disability benefits or just recently on forced academisation of secondary schools and indeed of primary schools also, have been achieved by people putting pressure on Parliament, disabled people getting organised or teachers, counsellors and parents lobbying their MPs. When he was a Labour MP, David Miliband talked about building a movement for change. That is what we have to deliver, going beyond the constraints of internal Labour Party politics, which so obsesses much of the media, and looking outwards to our communities to transform society and mobilise society to that task. The best local Labour parties are already doing that. The new members that doubled party membership last year want Labour to win elections, just as long-standing members want to do too. But they also want our party to be engaged in local communities and take action now, to campaign, to inform, to protest as well. And there is a role for local Labour parties and local members to be message carriers on the streets and via social media, to overcome the free press, which is freely owned by a small group of billionaire tax dodgers. Do not underestimate the massive impact that social media has had on political debate, political discourse and political engagement in this country and indeed all over the world. That is surely the way in which um, Labour can be in a good chance of winning future elections by that mobilisation. We've doubled in membership, our youth membership has trebled and I want our ambition to be to double or treble that too in redefining what a political party does. So rebuilding the politics of hope demands two things. Firstly, that we inspire people with a vision that fully uses the power of governments to transform society, to tackle the problems that people face, and to fundamentally redistribute wealth and power so that we live in a more equal society in which the economy functions for the good of all. Secondly, we have to rebuild trust. 
That is what straight-talking, honest politics is about. We'll take on difficult debates, whether it's over welfare or immigration. We will confront, confront powerful interests and we'll involve people, consulting widely on proposals and changes that we plan to make. Last summer, during the leadership campaign, we asked members and supporters for their views on a range of policy issues. We issued 13 substantial policy papers, all of which were for consultation and all of which received very interesting responses from party members and supporters all over the country. From industrial strategy in the north, policy on rural areas, issues facing women and those confronting young people. I'll give you an example. In the consultation on Northern Futures, we received 1,200 detailed submissions, very well thought out, in just a few days. If people are given the real opportunity to contribute and debate and don't feel sidelined by the political processes and machinations of a party, they want to be involved, that emboldens them, it strengthens the party. There is a virtuous circle in that. And this goes also for how we develop our economic policies. Because as you kindly pointed out in introduction to me, uh, the fundamentals of the election campaign for leader of the party last year was about changing the economic direction. Which is why John McDonnell has been talking a lot about the contribution that cooperatives can make to our economy. About empowering people to come together to take control of their own lives. This is the absolute opposite of what the Conservatives have done passing responsibility without the support and resources to enable people to take control. John has rightly talked about establishing a right to own for workers, to stop companies and, uh, being treated like possessions on a monopoly board and give workers the first refusal on taking over a company when it changes hands. And on Thursday, we'll be launching Workplace 2020, which is a consultation and discussion on how we improve rights at work, rights for all workers and rights for self-employed workers, recognising the structure of the modern economy in Britain. We're also learning from the decentralised social ownership model. Germany's energy system, for example, which can play a role in both the transition to a carbon-free future and in putting power in the hands of local communities, literally, to generate their own electricity and their own energy sources. And we need to decentralise our country and our economy. That's why we want a national investment bank to truly rebalance the economy, achieved through a network of regional banks attuned to the needs and opportunities of local economies. It's something that Ralph talked about in his final book, which I have here, Socialism for a Skeptical Age, when he talked about a partnership between a socialist government on the one hand and a variety of grassroots agencies on the other. Ralph wrote that book in the context of the end of the Cold War and the the future for the left in a post-Cold War society. The economy of the future will not be the economy of the past. We cannot and should not want to turn the clock back, either to 1945 or to 1997. This government has utterly failed against every single one of its economic targets. Eradication of the deficit, failure to meet their target on the debt, failure to rebalance the economy, failure to address the productivity crisis. George Osborne used to talk about the march of the makers, five years on, still nowhere to be seen. The fabulous thing about George Osborne's five-year plans and five-year forecasts is that whatever date they're given, it's always five years away. That's what the five-year plan looks like. We've made the case, and John has made this very well, 
that austerity is a political choice, not an economic necessity. This government has consistently made the case for austerity. George Osborne has staked his economic credibility on his austerity economics, and they're failing to deliver. This is why the agenda set out by John is so vital to this project. He is setting out about rebuilding the economics of hope. And like we're trying to do more widely, this is taking the message out around the country with the new economics tour engaging people in debate about how to build an economy that works for all and all underpinned by an economic advisory council comprising some of the most respected names in the field. We believe that economic justice and economic credibility must go hand in hand, but it must be ecologically sustainable too. The crisis in the world of climate change and of environmental destruction has to be addressed. If we want to survive on this planet, we have to have governments that are prepared to intervene. We also have to have international agreements and international trade treaties that protect rather than damage and destroy the environment. I feel very strongly and very passionately on that. Our desire for economic and social justice cannot just stop at our own borders. Human rights know no borders. We share the same world. We share humanity. Climate change affects us all. Like, like pollution, it refuses to accept national borders. Any one of us, in different circumstances, could be refugees. Like those fleeing across the Mediterranean and sadly many dying in the process or across the Aegean. Or across the English Channel, like Ralph did 75 years ago. Government can and must act to ensure the benefits of technological advance, not just for the few. The government must ensure, crucially, that global corporations are held to account. That is the big elephant in the room. The limited power of democratic governments compared to the enormous power of global corporations. We also have to put forward proposals that tackle intergenerational poverty and ensure the next generation is not worse off than the last. I'm fed up with being told and advised to tell today's younger generation, sorry, you're going to be more in debt than the last one. Sorry, you won't have the same health service we've had. Sorry, you won't have the same pensions we have. Sorry, you won't have the same opportunities for public housing that we've had, because it's all going to diminish. It is a question of whether or not we allow the politics of despair and the rolling back of the state to take hold, or if we're prepared to promote the idea of a community as a whole that works for everybody. I don't underestimate the scale of task in front of us. We won the Labour leadership last September with three aims. To change the Labour Party, to change politics, and to change the government in 2020. <coughs> Simple, only three tasks. And if we're to rebuild the politics of hope, we need to do three things. A vision to inspire people that politics has the power to make a positive difference to their lives. Trust that people believe both we can and that we will change things for the better. And finally, the involvement and engagement of people to make the first two possible. There's no point in being in politics if you're not ambitious. Not for yourself, but to make your community, your country and your world a better and more just place. If that sounds like the kind of project you want to be involved in or get involved in, then you're very welcome, because we have to rebuild the politics of hope, the idea that collectively we can achieve. 
collectively we can change things and collectively we can bring about the sort of socialist principles and values that Ralph Miliband dedicated his whole life to trying to achieve. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, we've got a good period of time for questions and discussion. I think it's likely there'll be a number of people who want to ask questions, so I propose to take questions in uh, twos or threes. Can I ask everybody uh, to wait till they get the microphone, wait till I call you, and then say who you are and where you're from, please? So um, could we start with uh, this woman at the front here? Just remember to say who you are and where you're from. Um. Thank you very much uh, for your very. Thank you very much for your very uh, enthusiastic and visionary speech, um, Mr. Gobin. My name is Sana Musharraf, and I'm from Pakistan. I'm a recent graduate of LSE. Um, my question may not be appreciated, um, but I do want to raise the difficult uh, issues as you welcome them. And I hope that you might be able to satisfy my very curious uh, intellectual um, desire to learn from you. Is there a question? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, coming to the hard point, um, it's very important to dream. However, it's, very, it's more important to consider the realities and then have a nice blend of utopia with practicality. I do respect what you are suggesting is the future for Britain or for the Labour Party or for the socialist uh, ideals. However, you do not dis discuss any path or any direction other than building trust or engagement, how to practically, sustainably bring such socialistic changes in a so-called radically capitalistic society. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Now, I, I do want people to set a good model of succinct questions because otherwise we're... <laughs> no, really, it's not fair, otherwise people don't get to have their say. So can I have the gentleman there with the glasses next, please, and remember to say who you are and where you're from. Uh, Dr Philip Walden, Oxford. Uh, Jeremy, I want to make a big point about the decline, or some might say the collapse, of intellectual culture in this country over the last 30 years. And this hurts us on the left continually. So we have an interest in raising the level of intellectual culture. Philosophy has got a lot to do with this. The government have been continuously attacking philosophy in the educational institutions, and we must defend philosophy, which has wisdom within it, and which gets away from and the constant discussion of factoids or even facts and gets us onto principles which are the way in which we which are the way in which we understand the way in which we understand how to go forward from where we are it's principles that are far more important than facts uh, facts have their role of course uh, so uh, it's people on the margins who've been developing, uh, who've been defending the intellectual culture of this country, and we want to know whether you are going to talk to us about how you 
uh, and, the and the Labour leadership are going to defend the intellectual culture of this country and defend socialism. Okay. Um, now, uh, <laughs> in, in, in a sort of wishful optimism, I'm going to ask someone... Could we have the, the man in the white shirt up the back there, please, and just wait for the mic? <clears throat> My name is Amir. I'm a grad student at the LSE. I'll keep it short. What are you going to do to democratize the European Union? I don't know why people clapped, but I'm going to clap that person for excellent excellence of singing. <laughs> so three questions. Okay. Um, first question about practicality in doing things. Well, thanks for your question. The idea is you elect a government with a parliamentary majority that can do things differently. Do you then um, lecture people on the need to observe the free market economy and free market rules, or do you look at the fundamental problems, which is the injustice in society, the grotesque levels of inequality that we face, um, and do something about it? You do something about it by fair levels of taxation, collect the uncollected taxes, obviously, but also by investment in public services, education, health and housing are the ones that come to mind. But it's also about empowering communities. And so if we, instead of treated local government as being an extension of central government, which um, by edict has to carry out a, su a substantial level of services, instead empowered it to be involved, for example, in energy generation, for example, in local economic planning and local transport planning, you actually involve an awful lot more people in things and they can then decide on their own future and their own lives. Likewise, what John is talking about is promotion of cooperatives and cooperative working. There are um, a billion people all over the world who are involved in co-ops in some way or the other, largely outside of Europe more than in Europe. It's seen as a perfectly normal way of doing things in many parts of the world. I'm quite interested in the idea of the way housing cooperatives work, just as much as I'm interested in the way that we could manage many of our services differently. Why, for example, can't there be an element of cooperation in the running of railway services where train operating companies could be replaced by others who've got direct experience of running, running the railways? There are many other examples like that. We do live in a um, capitalist society, obviously. We do live in a world that is, um, to some extent, dominated by the idea of free market economics. But I tell you this, after the crash of 2008-09, the rapid understanding of an awful lot of people that the idea of unregulated banks and financial sectors somehow or other helped them, and there was a trickle-down effect, was pretty quickly eroded. The Panama Papers of a few weeks ago showed that the systematic tax evasion and tax avoidance of the very wealthiest putting their money into tax havens didn't actually help anybody, and one day all of those people are going to need a public service if they get into difficulties. I think they should um, therefore pay their fair share. So a radical government would chase down these issues, would be an interventionist in industry, and would seek to um, 
reduce the levels of inequality in society, and above all, measure itself by them as well. Measure itself by the reduction in homelessness, by the reduction in overcrowding, by the reduction in the need for people to use food banks, all those kind of issues. And I say to those that say, well, all this is all pie in the sky, I say this to them. Are you really comfortable living in a society where you know there is somebody sleeping outside on your street, where you know there are a million people needing food banks merely to get by in one of the richest countries in the world? Are you really comfortable with those levels of inequality? And won't you one day need the NHS, social care, and all the other things. So you do it in a number of ways, and you put those ideas forward. And you work in concert with other governments across Europe and other parts of the world in challenging the power of um, those that seek to systematically evade tax, which is basically our down payment on, on the collective good. On the question on um, intellectual culture and defending philosophy, yes, I absolutely would um, de defend philosophy and what goes uh, and what um, is discussed and taught. I would also strongly defend um, the academic independence of universities and institutions of learning because it's good for all of us if there is academic independence and uh, the ability of people to widely think, which is why I believe very strongly in access to university and all forms of further and higher education. I come from a generation that basically was given free university education. The fact I didn't personally take it up is my, uh, my mistake, not the mistake of the system. Um, but it's now very, very expensive. And I was talking to a group of young people last week, not in London, outside of London, about um, what they were going to do. They were young people, doing pretty well in school. These were school kids, doing pretty well. And I said, what's for you? They said, are you going to go on to university? Said, no. Too expensive. I can't load that debt on myself or that debt on my family. It's not for me. It's for those who can afford it. Now, that's an awful thing to say in 21st century Britain. We can and have got to do very much better on access to it. But it's also a question of access to art and culture within society. It was the Labour government of the 1960s with Jenny Lee as uh, Minister of Arts and Harold Wilson as Prime Minister that uh, established the Open University which gave real access to learning to a whole generation who'd had no opportunity to take it up. And a Ministry of Arts that set up the Arts Council that funded theatre, that funded music, that said that culture must not be exclusive it should not be highbrow and remote. It should be available and open for all. And I absolutely believe that. You've got to unlock the joy, ambition, and enthusiasm in young people for music, for dance, for poetry, for digital economies, all those, all those kind of things. And you do that by relatively small amounts of public investment and you develop an attitude that culture is something that we all have and enjoy. And so in... Promoting all of that, we're developing a policy which one of, is defending the principle of the BBC as a public service broadcaster rather than the direction in which I suspect the government wants to take it. But it's also recognising our own history of the Labour movement, recognising where our rights, where our privileges and where our good things come from, recognising those that laid down their lives, recognising what the Chartists did, recognising what the suffragettes did, recognising, going further back, English Civil War and all the rest of it. And so 
I see part of my role as leader of the party to recognise that degree of history, and so I spent a very interesting, uh, very interesting time visiting the People's History Museum in Salford. But I also make it my business to attend all the big Labour movement celebrations throughout the year: Durham Miners Gala, the Tolpuddle Martyrs Festival, the Burston Strike Festival, all those big events, because they are a coming together of people who, yes, at one level, are applauding those that uh, made enormous sacrifices from which we've all benefited, but they're also a way of empowering people. Hang on. Those six farm labourers changed the social and legal and trade union history of this country by their actions. They probably didn't realise how important their actions were when they did it, but it had that effect. And those modern martyrs are being played out every day, somewhere, all over the world. And I'll give you another example of popular movements and how things change. Hillsborough was a dreadful disaster. The conspiracy of silence of the establishment, which denied anything bad had been done, and the media, which chose to denigrate a lot of working-class football supporters, led to um, a conclusion that somehow or other all those deaths in Hillsborough were caused by people who supported one football club. Those families stuck together for 27 years to bring about a new inquiry and uh, eventually get at least to the truth of it and possibility of some degree of justice. It's people like that who really defend human rights, really defend the gains that have others made. And I want to develop that idea of the cultural rights that people have and that right of free speech and that right to be open and honest about things. On the question of the democratization of the e European Union, very, very good question. Um, <laughs> There is a European Parliament which has um, some powers. There are national parliaments which have some powers. There's a European Commission which has a lot of powers and the Council of Ministers which um, goes somewhere over or in between or beneath uh, or, or around them. There are massive issues within the, within the European Union. I say that as somebody that... Um, uh, looks at the whole issue of how this referendum is being played out, but also looks at it in the context of the kind of continent we want to live in. There is a movement of the far right across Europe at the moment which wants to establish barbed wire entanglements to stop refugees from arriving in places, and there are those that want to see a free market Europe uh, with the diminution of the social chapter and the workers' rights that go with it. I want us to be with those that are campaigning for greater social justice in Europe, with those that are trying to stop the grotesque levels of exploitation of migrant workers. That therefore requires a European Commission that is democratically accountable for what it does, but it also requires a power of um, national democratic governments coming together to hold to account those very big corporations that some of whom have done quite well out of the European Union. I support uh, the Remain campaign, not because I love the European Union and all its institutions, but because I want to see better social standards all across Europe because I want to see better environmental protection all across Europe and because I don't want to see the powers of xenophobia and national frontiers to take over from what has to be an international cause of people working together to achieve <coughs> better living conditions and better living conditions all across Europe. Next question, please. Right. So um, can I have this uh, woman with the glasses in front of me, please? Just wait till you get the mic and then... Um, 
And then after that, this, this person here. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Is it? Um, my name's Phoebe. I'm a second-year student here at LSE. Um, you mentioned in your speech about how we have to win back seats in 2020, that we've not won for decades or may not have won before. And whilst I'm so behind all of this, how do you think we're going to get people who voted Tory last time to vote for such a different kind of party in the 2020, uh, 2020 election in order to like, reinforce all these things we've discussed? Okay, thank you you very much. Now, this woman here with the glasses. Um, Hi, Jeremy. My name's Shardy, and I'm from London. Um, I was just wondering how a Labour government might deal with competing objectives that you described, for example, um, supporting um, steel or mining workers, while at the same time promoting a more environmentally friendly agenda. Thanks. Thank you. Um, And then um, there's a gentleman with a beard for a second from the back there. I think there's only one gentleman with a beard there, but... <laughs> Don't I count? Cheers. <laughs> My name's Matt. I'm a grad student here. I just wanted to ask, Jeremy, what you think of the idea of a universal basic income. S- sorry, the what, say? Universal, universal basic, basic income. income. Okay. Okay, thank you very much for those succinct questions. Um, on the 2020 and how we get people to win... Um, we had local elections um, 10 days ago and um, the results were that we had an increase on the vote for the Labour Party over 2015. We finished ahead of the Tories. We um, held control of a lot of local authorities, particularly in the south of England where we were told we were uh, incredibly vulnerable. We gained control of Lancaster City Council and we had a very good result in both of the parliamentary by-elections. Those elections were held against the backdrop of um, a media avalanche of saying that Labour was about to be completely tanked in those elections, uh, and we were not. Uh, They were also held in the background of um, a... Yes, it wasn't a good result for Labour in Scotland, and there is going to be a long rebuilding process, but there is also going to have to be that engagement with um, (coughs) anti-austerity politics in Scotland by the Labour Party, and I think the manifesto drawn up by the Scottish Labour Party was a very good step in that direction. Um, Do we win people over to the party or not? Well, there's a number of factors about the 2020 election. And in no particular order, they go something like this. In the 2015 election, less than half of young people registered to vote actually voted. Uh, That is those registered, because the registration system is... um, mitigates against young people registering to vote. I hope they all do register, but many have not. So... A lot of our campaigning is about trying to engage younger people with politics and certainly the numbers that have joined the party or become very active in Momentum or other campaigns show the interest and enthusiasm that is there. Secondly, the numbers of people that either didn't vote or voted UKIP in the past... Do I think everyone that votes UKIP is a lost cause? Absolutely not at all. I spent a lot of the last election campaign uh, discussing with voters in a number of constituencies who were potentially UKIP voters what their concerns were. Their concerns were 
about housing, about education, about jobs, about zero-hours contracts, about insecurity in their lives and exploitation of, um, of, their, of youngsters. And uh, they felt that um, we weren't clear enough on what we were offering for them or what we were trying to achieve. So I hope to engage increasingly with those groups and um, develop that understanding. But I don't think politics should be necessarily a sort of bargaining counter of party offers, voters deliver, 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 offer, deliver, offer. Surely it's about democracy and a movement and inclusion of people in what they achieve. If you think about how the great achievements in our society were brought about, the welfare state, the National Health Service, the ideas of public ownership, the ideas of powerful local government, all were brought about because of the growth of democracy, all were brought about by the engagement of very large numbers of people in particular causes. And uh, therefore, our campaigning work is about involving people, is about bringing people together. And if you look at the way the government's retreated recently on three or four of the issues that I mentioned in my own contribution, there is a greater thirst for political involvement, not just here, but in other, other countries as well. And so I hope that as we, get, as we go on, we get um, increasing levels of activity and increasing levels of public pressure. And again, the use of social media as a way of informing and mobilizing people is something that was never, ever available for any movement ever before in history. They could only get information through the prism of their own abilities at propaganda or by, um, by word of mouth, very seldom through the, the straight um, national media, which in, Britain's case, in the case of Britain has pretty well been always hostile to the left and to the, and to the Labour Party. Um, on the point that was made about environment and industry, uh, other contradictions, well, we have to live in a world that is sustainable. Therefore, we have to work out how we uh, produce what we need and reduce the levels of pollution and have a real respect for the natural environment in so doing. Therefore, the environmental protection legislation that already exists is very important, maintaining the natural ecosystem, maintaining uh, the diversity, the biodiversity of our lives is very important. But it's also a question of how we produce things and how we do things. And so you can, by tough re legislation and regulation, make a very big difference to air quality through regulation. You can make a very big difference to the design, manufacturing, and operation of vehicles by very tough regulation. You can make a very big difference to industries in the way they do it. And I'll tell you, I had this absolutely fascinating conversation in Port Talbot at a union meeting two weeks ago. I went to Port, I've been to Port Talbot a couple of times during the recent crisis, and two weeks ago, on the eve of the local elections, I'd been at an event in Ogmore, we were having a by-election, I went down to Port Talbot afterwards to have a discussion with the steelworker unions there. And do you know what the discussion was about? It was about the environmental pollution issues, it was about sustainability. And they made two points. One is that by having trade agreements with other countries that don't include tough environmental protocols, in reality, what we do in Western Europe and to lesser extent in the USA is export pollution to other parts of the world. So if you have very tough environmental regulations here on what you can make and what you can produce, and you don't have the same regulations on imported goods, in reality, what you're doing is transferring the pollution somewhere else. 
And the second point they made was that they themselves had come up with a large number of measures about how the plant could be made more efficient, how the gas produced could be reused, how an awful lot of other things could be reused, and how the surplus heat from the blast furnaces and other things can be used in district heating schemes and all the rest of it. When you involve a community in it with the principle that you want a degree of environmental protection or a very high degree of environmental protection, then you can achieve an awful lot of things. And so I think back to the debates that have been happening in London over the past 30 or 40 years on transport. In the late 60s and early 70s, London was being um, motorwayized. The whole idea was more cars, more roads, more parking spaces, and then because you haven't got enough space, you build more roads and yet more parking spaces. And after a while, you discover you've destroyed the city that you were building roads to get people into because you've made it all into a car park. And so um, something doesn't add up there. And there was a growing understanding that you couldn't go on doing this. And so those of us that campaigned against major road building in London probably didn't realize it. We were actually at the center of what was a seminal debate of how you run a city, how you make a city sustainable, how you improve public transport, reduce the use of the private car, and therefore reduce, if you can, levels of pollution that go with it. There is a popular thirst for all of those things. And... uh, The protection of our environment is fundamental to everything that we believe in, and uh, I see that as central to what we're doing. Does it mean you stop every form of industry? No. Does it mean you have to have regulations and sometimes make yourself quite unpopular in the process? Yes, but you have to explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. I think we all understand the fundamental problem to it. And the third question was... I can't read my basic writing. Basic income. Ah, basic income level. Um, work in progress, my friend, work in progress. With, uh, John McDonnell and many others are thinking about this. I, I see the argument behind it that, um, in a sense, um, a basic income level that guarantees a reasonable living, you know, standard of living for everybody is important. I remember the debate that was brought in that first brought in in in-work benefits into our society. Um, They can be seen as a great boon by central government, but unless you also have a guaranteed level of wages being paid, you actually end up subsidizing low wages um, by in-work benefits and by housing benefit without rent regulation, subsidizing high rent. So you actually end up spending a great deal of public money on subsidizing two unacceptable phenomena and therefore our strategy is for a living wage that really is a living wage and not a a process by which we uh, falsely depress wages in order to um, increase profits for companies and at the same time um, actually increase the expenditure on a public purse to try and ameliorate the worst effects of that and so um, the strategy of a, uh, a living wage that really is a living wage is something that I absolutely support and as I said in my contribution we are launching this um, consultation exercise called Workplace 2020 on Thursday as a way of building up a public buy-in and a public debate around all of that. My whole philosophy, our whole philosophy is that the more one debates publicly and discusses publicly the policies that we want to put forward you get a public buy-in for them in 2020. I don't want us to be going away in January 2020 to some exclusive um, countryside resort and um, decide in uh, due ceremony and great secrecy what's going to be in the Labour manifesto for the general election of that year. 
I want it to be absolutely obvious and plain as a pike staff what it's going to be because we will have been campaigning for it for all the four years up to that point. So it will be about housing, it will be about jobs, it will be about environment, it will be about real security in society, which is all the things that I've been talking about in my lecture. Okay, um, I'm going to start up here. Is, is there someone? Yes, over here. Can I have um, the woman with the stripy white and grey? Um, just, yes. And <clears throat> Hi, I'm Louise. I'm from the Young Greens. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about um, how do you see the future of cross-party working because I feel like a lot of the things that you say the Green Party also speaks about and I know other parties and people who work in politics also speak about. So I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Okay, thank you. And um, over here, uh, this, this gentleman with his hand up straight. <laughs> Hi, I'm Richard. I studied law here at LSE. Um, I know you don't like to slander other politicians or parties, uh, Jeremy, but um, wh what do you think about uh, Dodgy Dave? Right, that could be a trick question by Dodgy Dave. Um, and uh, lastly... He's a lawyer as well, yeah. Is, is, there you are. Um, and can I just have this woman here with the glasses and the grey cardigan? Hi, I'm Vicky. I work here at LSE. Um, recently, Tristan Hunt's uh, spoken about the fact that Labour lost in the last general election in part because of their unwillingness to embrace an English identity and embrace that importance for some people. Given we've talked quite, you've talked quite a lot about the importance of um, national and global solidarity, do you think it's possible or productive at all for Labour to be talking and trying to engage this notion of English identity if such a thing exists? Okay. Um, Louise, your question on cross-party work in Parliament. Well, I've been on the back benches for 33 of the 34 years I've been in Parliament, so... The first time I ever went on the front bench was to ask questions to the Prime Minister. I'd never been there before. It's a different view, I tell you. Um, but um, so, yes, on, lo on lots of parliamentary issues, there is cross-party working. And indeed, um, I've been involved in many campaigns, justice campaigns, human rights campaigns, Guildford 4, Birmingham 6, many, many others, in which, yes, you've worked with um, MPs and other parties as a way of um, promoting the cause and getting some achievement on it. The defeats that we've inflicted on the government on uh, working tax credits or forcing them back on their disgraceful idea of running the prison service in Saudi Arabia and a number of other things have all been done because other parties mobilised with us to achieve it. And um, uh, I am the leader of the Labour Party. I'm very proud to be the leader of the Labour Party. I'm very proud of our party. Uh, in opposition, yes, we, are, we do and obviously will um, try and get the support of others in order to put things forward. And so cross-party working uh, in that sense is, um, is absolutely fine. And uh, uh, I think that uh, the internal debate in parties is often quite interesting and sometimes it's seen as division. Actually, sometimes internal debate can be quite a healthy thing and uh, help to get members more involved and more involved in the political process. Law student Dodgy Dave. <laughs> I, um, 
I sometimes get, I believe, unfortunate comments made about me in some of our media. I believe. <laughs> but I, um, uh, Ed gave me some very good advice just after the election. He said, don't bother reading too many newspapers. It will make you upset. <laughs> he, he's, he's, he's quite right about that. And I, quite honestly... Um, I don't do personal abuse. I don't respond to any personal abuse. I think it demeans what we believe in. It demeans what we're about. And politics is not a theatre. It's not a game. It's not a comedy. It's serious issues that affect people's lives, and it should be treated in that way. Because, quite honestly, if um, I used bad language about the Prime Minister... He would be therefore encouraged to use bad language about me, and I don't want to encourage him any more in that direction. Um, <laughs> but if I responded, what would be reported as my response, he would no doubt come back with something else, and so we'd go on. For the first day or so, it might be quite witty. By the second day, it would be less interesting. And by the third day, it would be reduced to the 5% of the population that are, are, are very devout followers of the absolute entrails of politics. The rest of the population would say, oh, what's all that about? It's nothing to do with me. And so uh, I haven't made myself terribly popular with some parliamentary colleagues by... Uh, trying to turn Prime Minister's question time into a popular questioning of the Prime Minister. But I tell you this, it has a much bigger impact outside. If people say, well, thank you for trying to at least articulate what ordinary people's concerns are. So I'm not getting involved in anything about, about that. Sorry. Okay. Um, on the, uh, uh, the, the last point that was made about um, uh, tr what Tristram had said and about um, English identity, I think there is an interesting discussion to be had here, and certainly the way in which Billy Bragg has approached it is very interesting, and I think a lot of what Billy Bragg has said, written about, and sung about is quite important, because in many parts of the world, to hold up your national flag is seen as absolutely normal, natural thing to do. People do it. And so um, if you take um, any country in Latin America, Mexico, Chile, Argentina, anywhere else, everybody would assemble around the national flag and they wouldn't see anything odd about it. They would see it as their flag. Um, identity politics is something that is actually quite important. But it's also an identity about what it's about. Is being English something about just the social structures of society and the royal family and the tra English traditions or the British traditions? Or is it also about the way in which our society has developed, the history that comes from everything, the Romans, the Normans, the Tudors, the Victorians, and all the contributions that they made, and also the discourse of popular history? And, of course, the... Um, the way in which um, ordinary people have made such an enormous contribution to the way uh, a national character is framed. I think it's this sort of timidity about being proud of where our culture comes from. I think one of the great poets is actually John Clare. John Clare was a farm worker who um, was not particularly well educated but taught himself a great deal and wrote some absolutely brilliant poetry about life in the English countryside. I think it's that sort of history that we should be proud of and should be um, promoting the identity of. Likewise, perversely, in a world where communications has become 
quicker, easier, better, and there's a greater sense of global branding and global identity than there ever was before. There is also a growth of regionalism and regional identities and local identities as a kind of counterbalance to that. And so this plays out in Spain, in, um, in autonomy movements in Catalonia or the Basque Country or Andalusia or other places. Likewise, in this country, to a lesser extent, it plays out in a growing identity politics of the southwest of England, slight growth of the Cornish language, for example, and the devolution that has happened in Scotland and Wales. And um, we are promoting a constitutional convention, which will be announced very soon, which will be looking at huge issues of national power and democracy and the power of the House of Lords and the need for a, de a democratically accountable um, second chamber, upper chamber, but also about how you seriously promote devolution, with it sufficient financial devolution and equality of, of spending across the country or so that you reflect the um, balances and imbalances of expenditure as a way also of recognizing that local and regional identity because I think people often feel very um, concerned for their own identity in a, in, a, in a very rapidly changing world and this kind of hit me a lot when I, f I first came to live in London in the late 1960s I got very involved in politics in Haringey and became chair of the community development committee as a councillor and what we're trying to do was promote a sense of neighborhood local identity in an area with a very fast turnover of population. These things are actually important. Promoting the sense of community and the sense of community well-being also promotes a, a sense of community solidarity and actually gets you in a position where you are going to get support and acceptance for the idea of interventionist government, of um, uh, community that provides health care, that provides all the social services that we need, and the idea that it is the role of society as a whole to make sure everybody gets somewhere to live and we don't end up with the grotesque levels of inequality that we've got. So there is a, a whole point to it, and I think the um, people should be much more comfortable about considering the identity of of the country they're in, the area they're in, or the culture and the history that goes with it. I think a lot of the um, English history is absolutely fascinating and should be promoted much more as popular history of what people achieve to improve their own communities and their own lives. Read John Clare. <laughs> okay, now we're coming close to the end, so I'm just going to take um, two people and then I think uh, it'll all have to be um, quite short. Can I start it's with... My fault being too oh, long. We came here to listen to you, so... Um, can we have this woman here in, in the black and then um, after that can... Well, let's hear from you. Hi, uh, I'm Georgia and I'm an undergrad in the government department here. Um, and two of the things you spoke about when you, about the importance of rebuilding the politics of hope was vision and trust. And I kind of wondered if you could talk a bit more about how you see the Labour Party doing that in Scotland because it seems like that's where the SNP really uh, won and is definitely specifically trust. I think there seems to be a lack of trust in Scotland in general of parties in Westminster and, and obviously the Labour Party is the party that suffered the most. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. Thanks. Okay, and then finally, the man with the blue shirt on the very back there. Michael Mashinsky. I entered the LSC when, Jeremy, you entered Parliament. My question is, I was fascinated by your description of Keir Hardy's chair. 
It's uh, grotesquely ugly, stabs you in the back, and you can slip off it quite quickly. Was it actually a description of a chair or a metaphor for leading the Labour Party? <laughs> what an appropriate last question. Eh? <clears throat> uh, uh, okay, thanks. That's great. Um, on on the, the, the question of what's happening in Scotland... Scotland had a conservative majority uh, all through 19th and most of the 20th century. It only became a Labour majority towards the, well into the second half of the 20th century. The Glasgow Red Belt, the whole central belt of Scotland, was uh, an area of strong Labour tradition, strong communist tradition in both the shipbuilding and the coalfield communities, and uh, the whole history of Red Clydeside in the 1920s, and that great tradition <coughs> of Labour movement sol- solidarity uh, was something that is, has grown up and is obviously st- still there <coughs> and still exists, and indeed... The origins of Keir Hardy and his work are very much part of that. Um, Labour did very well in Scotland in, um, throughout the Thatcher years, and indeed one of the boosts was the Thatcher government using, the, using Scotland as a guinea pig to experiment with the poll tax. I think Labour got out of touch with a lot of what went on in Scotland and... Um, also didn't recognise early enough the issues of political identity in Scotland. In the 1974 election, Labour narrowly held on to a whole string of marginals in Scotland. In return, Harold Wilson said there had to be a degree of devolution, introduced the Barnet formula on expenditure, and introduced a referendum in 1979, which um, was then lost, not because the majority of Scots people didn't want it, but because there was a threshold put that wasn't achieved. Uh, That then, when Labour in opposition, then set up the Constitutional Convention, which came up with devolution in 1997 referendum, and the Scottish Parliament was elected. And um, Labour support started out very high and then declined, and uh, ultimately we ended up with the losses we've had. We got 20... 3% of the vote in this election, which was slightly more than the opinion polls or media predicted we're going to get. But I don't underestimate there is a long road back. I do think the SNP have a long-term political problem in that they're a national party, which is therefore trying to embrace a political spectrum that is very broad, from the left to the um, business community and the right, and parades itself as an anti-austerity party, but has um, so far refused to use the powers that the Scottish Parliament has been given, which Labour was proposing should be used to um, increase taxation at the top end in order to try and provide more resources, particularly for education in it. Is there going to be a long-term debate in Scotland? Yes. Is there a thirst for social justice in Scotland? Absolutely yes. Does Labour understand that? Yes, of course. Is there going to be a um, discussion and soul-searching within the party? Absolutely, and that is what's going on at the moment. But I have to say that I go to Scotland as often as I can, at least once a month, sometimes twice a month, in order to support the party and take part in in, in activities there. And um, 
we will continue to do that. In reality, uh, a political system has to deliver what people need in terms of health, of housing, of jobs and employment and uh, that is the offer that we have to be able to make to the people of Scotland and uh, we will continue to do that. Um, on the question from uh, yourself about the Keir Hardy chair... I think the Keir Hardy chair is actually an example of working-class pride and culture in a well-made, well-crafted, hardwood chair with deep polishing to show um, respect for the work that went into making the chair and the uncomfortable carving on the back of it is to make sure that if you're in the church or a meeting, you don't slouch you confidently listen and take part in the entire debate. And Keir Hardy was um, a fairly austere chap, and I can imagine him sitting for quite a long time, bolt upright like this, uh, making his case. Um, so I, see, I don't see leading the Labour Party as a pain in the neck or a pain in the back. I see it as an absolute joy. But above all, it's an opportunity to change the debate, to change the way in which politics is framed, to change the way in which we view our society as one of us bringing us all together rather than playing to the lowest common denominator to drive us all apart. People united can achieve fantastic things. People united, divided turn against each other and achieve nothing whatsoever except power for those that wish to seek us divided. I love the opportunity of uniting people around a common endeavor to reduce inequality, eliminate poverty, and defend and promote human rights and defend and promote peace all around the world. That's why I'm enjoying doing it. Thank you very much for your question. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming and speaking to us today. I just um, <coughs> wanted to thank you again for setting out some very important um, propositions about the situation we find ourselves in. You've shown how public faith in politics has been fundamentally shaken. I think you've tried to argue that the global financial crisis has created opportunities as well as dangers, and you've tried to set out how it might be possible to seize some of those opportunities some people, I think, are a bit pessimistic about that, but it seems to me that, as with the Great Depression of the 1930s, it takes some time for the political effects of great economic crises to be felt. And so some of the things we're seeing today, both here in Britain, across Europe, and, and even with a socialist running strongly in the United States, suggest that some of the opportunities really are there to be taken so I have to just, before I ask you to thank our speaker again, make one point. Could you please just stay where you are until we move out because we um, have to take our speaker onto his next uh, engagement. But could you join me again in thanking our speaker, Jeremy Corbyn, MP.